Welcome. We're glad that you're here. This is week number two in our Christmas study called Intros. And uh, just like some songs have familiar introduction, like Billie Jean, the introduction of Jesus has some very well-known features. And so you can think about angel choirs and a manger, the Virgin Mary, Christ child, shepherds, wise men, all of those things give us an indication this is the Christmas story. Now, last week, we took a look at the Christmas story from Luke 2, and we noted how that familiar saga challenges us in some of what we called our mainstay expectations of God. When you look at Jesus' introduction, it is challenging because we see Jesus showing up in unexpected places, using unexpected people, and doing some unexpected things. So this Christmas, we said, here's one thing we want to do, is we want to challenge ourselves about some of our expectations because we might be limiting what God can do in our lives. Now, this week, we're going to stay in that neighborhood of expectations, but we're going to turn down a different street. Today, in week number two of our intro study, we're going to talk about this, some consequences that come from the divine human Union, which is the centerpiece of the Christmas story, right? So we want to focus on some consequences that come from this divine human union. Maybe even clearing up some things because of understanding these consequences a little bit better. So maybe we can pray with a little more like focus. Maybe our faith and our hope can be reset to be a little bit more trusting in the Lord. Maybe some of our energy can be redirected in how we live the Christian life. Now, some of you may have been praying for some people lately, maybe like a husband. You're praying for your husband because he's a believer, but he's not necessarily growing in his faith in a way that kind of puts him in the direction of leading his home spiritually. So let me ask is is the best way to pray for him, like, God, just change him. God, just change him. Maybe there's something else that you can pray that's a little sharper, a little more focused, a little more direct. Maybe there's even aspects of who you are that you would love to see changed. Maybe you have some addictions and attractions that you just wish would go away. But maybe there's something more specific that you can do to deploy your hope today. Or maybe... In your workplace or in your family, there's some people that are a bit disruptive, maybe cause tension, maybe a little dysfunction. Your posture has been towards those people. Just ask the Lord, you know, just take those people's hearts that are causing all the difficulty and just grow them up and get them over it, Lord. But is that the likely way that this situation will be resolved without you having to get involved in the grit of grace? I don't know. But I do believe today there are some consequences to this mystery of the union of the divine and the human that will help us be a little more poised in our walk with Jesus. So I want you to take your Bible, open with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. This is the kind of the prequel of the Christmas story that we read last week. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. 
Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Look at verse 29. Confused and disturbed. Those are two different things. Confused and disturbed. Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. The Message Bible translation of the angel's announcement reads this way. Good morning. You're beautiful with God's beauty, beautiful inside and out. God be with you. Now that might help us to kind of get our thoughts around how Mary would have received this this kind of odd greeting. It may have been a little bit off-putting for her to hear him say, hey, you're beautiful inside and out. Now remember, she's a teenager. I've raised three teenage daughters. So I have an idea of how she might respond to this kind of strange introduction. Eh, 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 what are you talking about? Eh, eh. Are you, are you hitting on me? What's going on here? Reading this again this past week, it, it, it made me think like Gabriel's very unusual announcement uh, kind of falls in a category of some like best and worst pickup lines. So we're a full service ministry here. We'll help you out in every way. So some of you fellows may need to help in your game, right? here. Okay, say, so take note. These are the best and worst pickup lines. Here's one. Are your feet hurting, baby? Because you've been running around in my head all day. Stop it. Just stop it. If you were on the menu at McDonald's, you'd be McGorgeous. That's not that bad. That's, that's not that bad. If I had invented the alphabet, you and I would be much closer together. And then this one, this is great for today. Did it hurt when you fell from heaven? Because, girl, you are an angel. So Mary's kind of processing this kind of strange, like abrupt moment. And look at verse 29 again. Confused and disturbed. What are you talking about? What do you mean? Verse 30, don't be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you'll name him Jesus. The name Jesus means God saves. You'll be very great. We call the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Now the next verse we start to kind of get the introduction to this mysterious union of the Human and divine. Look at verse 34. Mary asked the angel, How can this happen? I'm a virgin. The angel replied, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the baby born to you will be holy. There's no no sexual act. This is a mysterious union of the divine And the human, and he will be called the Son of God. Verse 34. For the word of God 
will never fail. How could this happen? The word of God will never fail. If we were reading this in a Greek New Testament, the language that the New Testament was originally written in, that, that phrasing of verse 37 would read this way. It would be, no word from God lacks power. Like, how could this happen? Well, no word from God lacks power. Nothing that God says ever fails. If God says it, it can and will be done. So some translations read for that back end of that verse, nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible. How could this be? How could this be? Like biologically, how could this happen? I've never been with a man. Well, nothing is impossible with God, Mary. Nothing is impossible with God. Look how she responded to that fresh revelation that God can do anything. Verse 38, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And then the angel left her. I really prefer some of the older translations of Mary's response. It reads this way, may it be unto me as you've spoken. May it be unto me. As you've spoken. That really is, listen to me, that's the heart of Christmas right there. May it be unto me. We don't talk about this much, but this is the true heart of Christmas. May it be unto me as you have spoken. This is the origination of this mysterious, divine, human union. There's a God side which is represented through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit to overshadow her. But listen, there's also a human side where Mary's participation became necessary too. So there's a God's side, there's Mary's side. Forges and forms this divine human union. Now let's dig into that just a little bit deeper. As we do, let's make sure that we're thinking about God in a scriptural way. So God is presented throughout the Bible as having a triune nature. We sometimes call that the Trinity. What that means is that there is only one God who eternally exists in three distinct equal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now take note of that. There's not three gods. We're not polytheists. One God eternally existing in three equal persons. The first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1-1, introduces us to this Trinitarian nature of God. Here's what Genesis 1-1 says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now you might remember from English class at some point in time, that in the construction of a sentence, you have to have subject and verb agreement. So if you have a plural subject, then the verb has to be described with plural action. Let me give you an example of that. The Texas Tech Red Raiders, they are going to a bowl game, right? We don't say they is going to a bowl game. They are going to a bowl game. Subject, verb agreement. We could also say Tyler Shuck is the quarterback for the Red Raiders at the Bogus. He is, not are, he is. Like you have to have subject, 
verb agreement. That's true in English. It's also true in Hebrew. However, in the first verse of the Bible, that rule is violated. Because in the beginning, God is written in a plural form. Created is third person singular. He created. You have a plural form subject with a singular form verb. Now, it's not that Moses couldn't write or understand like how language works. This is a, a demarcation of the truth that our God is three in one. Now, as the narrative of Genesis continues, we come across verse 26, Genesis 1, 26. Look what it says. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Who's us? It's one God existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, the second item to kind of dig down on in this is to know that the Son was and is eternal God. He didn't come into existence at Bethlehem. He was and is eternal God. The Son came to earth to take up a unique nature of both God and man. John chapter 1, verse 1 reads this way. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Verse 14, the Word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's only, one and only Son. Now, the word, word, is another way of referencing the Son. So we could go back and reread John 1 this way. In the beginning, the Son already existed. The Son was with God, and the Son was God. The Son became human and made his home among us. Now, the moment when eternal God became human was when Mary, in her full humanity, like surrendered herself to the Lord and then was overshadowed by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit to forge the human and the divine. There, there were two players required. God had a part and Mary had a part. As the divine seed met a human egg, a unique person was created that was both fully God and fully man. Now today there's technology for us to kind of get our head around how that could happen without sexual union. You have artificial insemination. So there's, there's ways for imagining how that could kind of work. But Jesus was conceived without that technology. And more importantly, it happens without two human participants. 
This is not just another person being formed, pairing human sperm and human egg. This is a mysterious union of the divine and the human forged into one. Fully God, fully man. Third little thing to drill down on is how this unique union of the divine and the human carried some ongoing consequences. I'm going to ask you to imagine some of this with me. That when God took on flesh, there was a demonstration really of unimaginable commitment. That the son gave up his divine autonomy. Consider it. Someone who needed nothing became someone who needed his diaper changed. He gave up his omnipotence, unlimited power and energy from one who was omnipotent to one who needed to take a nap. He gave up his omniscience, the ability to know everything. He hung, listen to this, he hung the cosmos in its place with such geometric precision that everything operates now perfectly in the universe. But he gave up his omniscience to have to learn math like the rest of us. It's like almost unimaginable the commitment that he made to become the God-man so that he was capable of being the substitute and sacrifice for our sins. And I want you to remember this about this union of the divine and the human. One of the consequences of it. One of the more memorable ways we'll recall it is the fact that Jesus forever willingly allowed himself, his body, to be marked by the consequence of his willingness to pay our sins penalty. He will forever have his hands scarred from the nail prints. His brow will forever be scarred. His side forever scarred. His back forever scarred. All because of his willing surrender to be the God-man to pay our sacrifice. Here's what the Bible tells us of what we can expect when we go to heaven. We get brand new bodies. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen, right? I've seen some of us. We need new bodies. We need new bodies. And we're going to get them. But when we get to heaven, Jesus will forever bear in his body cost of our being there. John in the book of Revelation gives us a glimpse into heaven, into the future. Here's how Jesus is described. His forever appearance is described this way as a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered. So he will forever be scarred from the consequence of his willing commitment to be the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Give him glory 
for his willingness to commit to that. Now, whenever we process, like this is heavy, whenever we process like the weight of the incarnation, the God-man, we, we, we have to conclude this is a unique representation. There will never be another one like Jesus. He is the one and only. However, there are other applications of this mysterious forge between the divine and the human. So what are you saying? I'm saying that salvation, when you and I make the decision to receive God's forgiveness, when we are born again, when we are regenerated out of spiritual death into life, when we are saved, it comes with this forge of the human and the divine, and there's some ongoing consequences. And so part of what we need to understand about our salvation is that in this divine human union, God has a part and we have a part. God has a part and we have a part. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, says, God saved you, look at these three words, by his grace. Say those words with me. By his grace. Jesus paid it all. He paid it all. So we're saved by his grace, but notice this, when you believed. When you believed. Jesus paid it all, but you can't be saved until you are willing to do your part, which is to open your soul, repent, turn from your sin, and believe on Jesus. Now, let's be sure to see the next phrase, and you can't take credit for it. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we've done. So none of us can boast about it, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. If you are saved, if you've received forgiveness that comes exclusively through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross to pay your sins penalty, and you've been born again, regenerated, brought spiritually to life, then God saved you by his grace, but you also had to do your part and receive the offer of salvation. We don't get saved until we personally decide to turn and accept Jesus. God has a part and you have a part in your salvation. Now, we don't have to worry about God doing his part. The only consequence in question is will we do our part. And not only we're talking about when you get saved, but there's an ongoing consequence to your salvation when there is this divine human union. Let me show you this. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. It says, continue to work out your salvation. Look at that. It didn't say work for It says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Can you see both God's part and your part in that passage? You got to work it out. A consequence of your salvation, you got to walk it out. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, we urge you in the name of the Lord Jesus to live your life in a way that pleases God. Colossians 2, 6, just as you accepted Christ as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. God has a part. We have a part. He'll do his part. The question is, will we do our part? Now watch this. God's not going to believe for you. He's not going to repent for you. He's not going to read the Bible for you. He's not going to tithe for you. He's not going to forgive someone for you. You have to walk out, work out your salvation. Notice this description, with fear and trembling. Now, is he saying we should be nervous and anxious? Can't be. Because there's far too many scriptures that address we need to have peace in God. And we need to have the confidence that when we are sealed by the Spirit, we are kept to the day of redemption. So fear and trembling is not nervousness and anxiety. What it is is a humble respect and responsiveness to be obedient to God. Let me say it this way. We're to work out our salvation by being respectful and responsive to what God tells us to do. This is the essence of Christmas, and it's the essence of my call to all of us in responding to God this season is to have Mary's heart. Let it be unto me as you've spoken. Let it be, that doesn't sound very Christmassy, but that's the heart of Christmas. Let it be unto me as you have spoken. You say, well, does God have the right to give me that kind of direction? I think he does. First Corinthians chapter six, verse 19. Don't you realize, look at this, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Here we are again. Look at this forge between the divine and the human Like your body is a temple. The Holy Spirit lives in you, graciously given by God. Now look at this. You don't belong to yourself. You don't belong to yourself. And we can add this anymore. Like God does have this right to give us direction. And there's a response that's appropriate for us, which is let it be unto me as you've spoken. Jesus made some comments about this very thing. Matthew chapter 7, he's teaching. He uses the metaphor of the building of a house. Here's what he says. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into, say that word, practice, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into, say it, practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. We, we, we got we to gotta put into practice what God says to do. And I can promise you this always when you are following Jesus. Listen, this is a consequence of that divine human union. When God leads you, there's always going to be a cost associated with it as a disciple we got to be willing to pay the cost to follow Jesus that's a consequence of the blessing of the union of having the Holy Spirit live in you is he dictates the cadence and we follow 
be a cost. But Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you got to be willing to take up your cross and then go in my steps. So this is the call of Christmas. Hey, listen, I love all the things about the Christmas season. I love the holidays. I love the traditions. I love all the specials, all the things that we tend to prioritize. But what I'm saying to us at Turning Point during this season, you can have all of that, but if you miss out on, come on, Lord, have your way in me. Any way you want to speak, any, whatever you want to do, I want to do. Then we're missing the challenge of Christmas. And I'm calling you not to miss Christmas this year. Let it be unto me as you've spoken. Let it be unto me as you've spoken. Let it be unto me as you've spoken. That is Christmas. Stand.